Making it in business isn't about spreadsheets, this or that. It's about guts, tenacity, and above all, street smarts. Join Sarah Shaw as she talks with successful entrepreneurs about all the hard-won lessons they've learned on the mean streets of the business world. If you've ever felt stuck, stifled, or even just scared to get out there and make your mark, you'll learn how even the most successful entrepreneurs overcame failure and found the power to move forward. So forget about learning about business in school, because all you need to make it big is a street smart MBA. And here's your host, Sarah Shaw. Hello, and welcome to a Street Smart MBA, and I'm Sarah Shaw, your host, and I am here today with Lisa Cohen, who's the founder of Path to Serenity Treatment, and what they do there is help people. Um, They're a certified drug and alcohol rehab facility, and Lisa graduated from the University of Arizona, where she majored in media arts, and now she's currently in recovery and has a strong interest in sharing her experience and strength and hopes with others who are recovering, and I wanted to talk to Lisa because I feel like somebody who majored in media arts, which is completely the other spectrum of anything sort of in the medical, you know, uh, counselor range, um, and that she was, in fact, an addict herself and has pulled out of that and is uh, a recovered addict and is really willing to talk about her experience and how she got to being where she is today. And she, you know, beating the addiction and starting a business to me is an amazing story. And I wanted to hear all about it. So Lisa, welcome today. So glad to be with you. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. I'm excited to be here and I'm happy to answer any questions you might have. All right. So let's talk about your story. So kind of tell us, you know, give us sort of the short, short version, I guess, of how you, you know, what kind of family you grew up in and, you know, and how you actually came to be addicted to drugs. Well, I was born and raised in Newport Beach, California. Um, My parents divorced pretty early on, um, but other than that, I'd say I had a fairly normal upbringing. Um, It wasn't so much as the home environment, I think, that played a role. I mean, a lot of therapists and psychologists will say that your problems start from the ages between one and four years old, and that's when we're really developing without realizing. So who knows in that sense? Uh, For me, I think... What, what really happened was uh, I've always been an adventurous type of person. I'm always saying, like, I'll try anything once. Let's do it. Let's have fun. So when I got to college in the University of Arizona, um, the partying really took a toll on me. And uh, some Oxycontin was introduced to me by a boyfriend. And I was just willing to try it. I had no idea that. What what I know now is that Oxy is actually a form of heroin. Mm -hmm. And, of course, when when you're in, you know, elementary school and middle school and they do all that dare and the drug warnings and they teach you and educate you about drug use, no kid wants to do heroin. It's, It's taught to us that, oh, no, stay away, like drugs are bad. Um, But when you get a little bit older and there's pills, you don't really it doesn't, it doesn't feel like a drug, right? It didn't feel like a drug. It was, you know, in a prescription bottle. Uh, I don't know. 
knowing what I know now, it was it was not a smart move. <laughs> um, <laughs> I but, mean, so, so he gave you the Oxycontin to party with, right? Not because you hurt your foot or something. It was purely no. for party purposes. Yeah. It was completely to have a good time. I had taken Vicodin before, like when I had my wisdom teeth removed, and I knew mm-hmm. that I liked painkillers, but it really started with this Oxy. I would say maybe the second time I decided to do it again, that's when I was instantly hooked. It happened so fast. You just, you feel this euphoric high and you just, you feel like you've arrived at home. You just want to feel like that all the time. Mm -hmm. So that's probably, you know, my story, that's how it really started. And then, so then obviously you had this guy, he supplied you with the oxy or however many times. And then what happened after that? Did you turn to, you kind of was, were like, I'm done with the oxy. Let's move on to the next level. (laughs) Well, that relationship was so toxic when, when two people are together and both of them have a dependency on a drug as strong as Oxycontin, you guys are going to go downhill really fast. And Mm -hmm. that's what ended up happening with us. Um, he was taking the painkillers because he had a medical condition. He had what was called cystic fibrosis, which mm. is um, it's a lung disease. There's no cure for it. It's very sad. And so we were both sort of using the drugs to cope with this medical condition. What started off as doing it for fun became a physical and mental dependency very quickly, and it spiraled out of control. We ended up, you know, we were fighting all the time. We broke up, whatever. Um, fast forward three years later, uh, I have this incredibly insane addiction and I can't stop no matter how badly I want to. So I reached so the whole three, that, that whole three years, you, you were really becoming addicted. Oh, yes. And, yeah. and, you know, when you're not taking the pills, your, your nose starts running, you're feeling the withdrawal symptoms, um, like my, my body was hurting all the time. Uh, it feels like you have a bit of a cold at first and or a flu. I, I had no idea I was addicted. I mean, I didn't know what was wrong with my body. I was just feeling these withdrawal symptoms with zero education on what was happening to my body until I realized it's, it's these pills that are making me sick and I can't stop doing them because I know they make me feel better. So once you accept that knowledge about yourself and you realize this is a problem. This is a problem because I want to stop and I can't. Um, it, it really, you know, it, that's the shift where you realize, okay, I think I need help. So I did reach out for help. Um, I, I contacted my parents and they pulled me out of Arizona and, and we, we went to a, a detox in Laguna Beach. It's called Mission, Mission Beach Hospital. Mm-hmm. And that was my first experience with treatment, with rehab, and all of that. So, How were your parents with all that? Oh, they just, my parents are very conservative. They just, they don't know any, they didn't know anything about drugs. They just knew that I was on drugs. They didn't fully understand why I was doing what I was doing. And they just wanted me to stop. You know, it was like, can't you just stop? Just stop it. (laughs) And so actually before the whole uh, detox thing, I 
I was in Israel with my mom and, and my sister, and they convinced me to do something called a rapid detox. So that was my first experience with trying to stop. And a rapid detox is basically a non-surgical procedure where they are pumping medication into your stomach that is supposed to go up to your brain and deplete your opiate receptors and completely cure you of this disease where you're no longer going to feel addicted. You just wake up and you're, you're cured. That's it. Wow. Um, that was the doctor's philosophy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sounds, so, like a, sounds like a miracle <laughs> to some people, it, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it works for some people. For me, that it really didn't work at all. I think it actually made mm-hmm. things much worse. And mentally, I really went downhill because I was like, well, crap, this, this cure didn't work for me. I'm really screwed, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I went through detox. And when I was in this detox program, that's where I met other people like me who had these addictions and they also couldn't stop. And that's why they were here getting help. And you think that you're alone. You think you're the only person in the world with this issue. And addiction is a very, very lonely place because nobody wants to be addicted to drugs. And when you realize that that's what's happening to you, you just feel like a complete failure. You're so ashamed. You know, why am I doing these things I never thought I would do? So that's a sort of bond and a connection you make with other people who are also in treatment. Now, unfortunately, Mm -hmm. there's the other side of that. And that is where drug addicts like to share and romanticize with each other about their drug use and how far they went and what they did. And it's sort of like this competition almost, especially with the younger generation. It can be that way. And that's where I learned that what I was doing with these pills was the exact same thing as what somebody else was doing with heroin. Uh, The Mm. difference was in the name of the drug Mm -hmm. and the brand. But in fact, heroin was a much cheaper alternative and gets you more high, supposedly. So Mm -hmm. this, this little piece of information was planted in my brain at my very first treatment center. So I think when I failed to stay sober for whatever reason, it, it takes people multiple tries. Some people get it on the first try with me. It was a, the journey to recovery was a whole other adventure. It took me a long time to get it. So, so what you're saying up, after you went to this treatment center that your parents put you in in Southern California, then you came out of it, but then you went back to using drugs. Absolutely. And that yeah. happened maybe five or six times. Mm-hmm. In and out of rehab. So, in and out of rehab. Um, and after that first treatment center, that's when I decided I'm going to try heroin for whatever mm-hmm. reason. Mm-hmm. You don't really know what you're thinking because when you're in your addiction, nothing else matters because you're so selfish and self-seeking all you want is to really please yourself and, and deal with this demon that's inside of your head. You just want it to be quiet. So that's what I did. And I discovered heroin and that was, you know, now I had this other huge obstacle to overcome because I discovered how to use a needle and how to obtain drugs for a much cheaper cost. Mm-hmm. And that was maybe a few years again. So now I'm 25 and, years old. 
And what are you doing during this time to make money or where are you living or how are you surviving? I had found little jobs here and there. Um, bartending was always an easy and quick way for me to make money. Um, and then I was also stealing and I wasn't a very honest person. You know, I think if I would have kept going down this road, it was only a matter of time before you're willing to sell everything. Mm -hmm. I probably would have become a prostitute at some point because you need money for, for the drugs. And that's the right. only thing that takes priority. Um, at, at that time I was still able to make money, um, bartending and staying with friends and stuff. So I wasn't really paying rent. Um, so I didn't quite get there yet, but I'm 100% sure if I would have stayed out there and continued to use drugs, that's, I would have ended up dead in a ditch, you know, probably naked. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, so that was like when I was 25 and then I, I got tired of it. Um, I got really tired of the, the sort of people that came with this drug. They were not nice people, you know. Um, you're hanging out with, with people who will do anything to get their hands on a little sack of heroin. Right. And, you're hanging out with other drug addicts. <laughs> right. And that yeah. meant violence and, and people were using weapons. And I was just finding myself in, in dangerous situations on a daily basis. And it just gets really old. Mm -hmm. um, so what, what was the turning point? Like what, what made you realize? I got to get the hell out of here and save myself. I, I was it an incident sure. or was it just some kind of mental change? It wasn't a particular incident. I do remember the day before I checked into my last rehab. I, I mean, this is a graphic story. If you don't mind me sharing. No, go ahead. Okay. I was in a, in my boyfriend's bathroom at the time and I had just bought, you know, the last bit of heroin that I could afford. I used the last of my money. I mean, I didn't even have $1 left in my wallet. And I was cooking it up on the spoon and I balanced it on the edge of the bathtub. And as I was reaching for my needle to do the shot of heroin, um, my, I, my hands were shaking because I was so sick from the withdrawal. And I spilled the, I spilled the heroin on the bathroom floor all of it, every last drop. And, and I just sat on the bathroom floor next to this puddle of heroin that I could no longer use, crying my eyes out. Mm -hmm. And I wasn't, I wasn't crying so much because I had spilled my last shot of heroin that I knew was going to make me feel better again. I was crying because this is how small my world had become. This was my life now. I'm sitting here on a bathroom floor in my boyfriend's house, who I don't even like, trying to do this shot of heroin. I mean, it was just so, it was like an awakening moment for me. It was so sad that this was, this was what my life had become. And I didn't mm -hmm. want to be that person anymore. So the next day I checked into rehab and, and I didn't ask my parents for help that time. I did it on my own. Um, I called my sister and I told her I was ready and she sort of guided me through the process and I told her, you know, don't tell 
mom and dad just yet. Let me just kind of figure this out on my own for now. Mm-hmm. Had you been talking and to your family at this point? No, I hadn't talked to my parents, and I don't even know how long. My sister, too. I, I, was, I didn't even have a cell phone at the time. Um, couldn't pay my cell phone bill. Or maybe I sold my phone for drugs. I don't even know, but I didn't have a phone. <laughs> mm-hmm. So my sister was the one phone number that I had memorized besides my parents. And I finally called her and I told her, you know, I hadn't spoken to her in months. And she was just happy to hear that I was alive. And she was like, you know, whatever you need, let's do it. You're lucky that you had that. Very lucky. So she she was kind of your silent cheering partner. Uh, she was while you were after you checked into this final rehab, and how how long did that? How long were you there? I mean, obviously a thirty day program, but how did you stay after? Did it did it work for you? That was the final one you said. So obviously that was, <laughs> it worked. Yes, that was the final one for me, and a huge inspiration for me to start the company that I started now because it was an all women's program. And before that I had been going to rehab in co-ed environments. Mm. And in this environment, it was only women. And I think that was a huge turning point for me too, because the focus no longer became on being in a co-ed situation. I had no idea how to interact with men before I got sober. Um, men were for one thing only to me, which was how can I manipulate you into getting what I want? Right. Um, <laughs> so, which is just the truth. I mean, I just didn't have healthy relationships with the opposite sex at all. So every time I went to rehab and there were men around, that became my focus. You know, how can mm-hmm. I get validation from you or, you know, n- not worrying about my problem and why I'm using drugs and why I can't stop. It was, oh, there's boys here. Let's flirt with them and not focus on the real problem. So being in an all women's program truly helped me to see what was important. And that's something that I wanted to bring into my own treatment center to help other women focus on the real issues. And, and that way you, you can really like get comfortable in a group setting when it's all one gender and you can all just talk openly and freely about, you know, any sort of sexual abuse or any sort of trauma with men or with whoever, there's so many different things that people have been through. And when you're in a group setting in a rehab, you're able to share about those experiences and support one another. And it was really a beautiful thing for me to be able to talk so openly and and really get vulnerable, Mm -hmm. which I think helped a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's kind of like, I, this is a silly analogy, but in a way, but it's sort of the same, you know, it's the same. My father was a psychiatrist and whenever we would have bad dreams, he would always have us tell him the dream as vividly as possible and also draw a picture of what we remembered from it. And when we did that, we never had the dream again. And it's, oh, wow. a, it's a psychological um, way of, or it was, or, you know, this is what he had said to us when we were little, you know, that by getting it out and telling the story, that it gets it out of your subconscious somehow so that you don't, um, 
have that same experience. You might have a variation of it, but you wouldn't have the same dream again, exactly the same, you know, because some people have reoccurring nightmares and, um, and or dreams that constantly come up because they can't get it out. So it seems like it seems logical to me, having grown up around that, you know, that when you're in a, a group therapy setting and you can and you feel comfortable to be vulnerable and open about what's, you know, what you think even think might even be your issues or things that happen to you that might be influencing how you turn out in your life, right? That exactly that you have this safe place to go back and talk about it over and over and that you have more of an opportunity to change, you know, change those old stories and make them into your new story, which you totally did. I 100% agree with that. And I think that's why going to treatment is so important for people because you need that help. You need that support. It's so hard to do it on your own. I know that some people do, but for the most part, it's really like a team effort to get sober. Yeah. It's almost impossible to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know that from a few people I know who've been through recovery. Um, and when they come out the other side, I'm always so amazed. <laughs> Just because I know the statistics are not that fabulous, you know. I mean, they're, yeah, it's not like it's, every, everybody who goes in is going to come out cured. Um, right. And, this, you know, the statistics are definitely against us. And, and that sucks because it, it is true. And I've seen it with my own eyes where people go to treatment and they just, they just don't stay sober for whatever yeah. reason. They just can't, they can't get it. But yeah, the important thing is that every time you go to treatment, even if you don't stay sober afterwards, there is still a seed that is being planted for the hope that recovery works. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So and is I this whole process, oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, if, if somebody <laughs> wants it bad enough, they can do it. it yeah. If I could do it, really, anybody can. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of people that say that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, what I was going to say is, has, has this experience, like being, you know, having to face your fears and, you know, your big dragons and all of that and, and you know, leap over, take a leap of faith, essentially, in yourself, Right. Um, you know, decide I don't want to be that way anymore and I want to be different. I don't even know what that is. You know, today, you know, probably I'm sure you didn't know what that was the day you checked into this uh, rehab. But, you know, obviously now that you're, you've been, how long have you been sober? Uh, four years since October. Awesome. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> congratulations. Thank um, you. So, so, what I was going to say is now that you have all these tools, right, in your tool belt, and you've, you've had so much to overcome, has this, do you feel like this process that you went through helped you become an entrepreneur? I mean, like gave you the resources to, you know, investigate and, and see what you needed and, and find the people to help you. I don't know if you got money from investors or you've done all this yourself you know, or you have a mentor that, you know, has helped you along the way. Um, and I want, I'd like to know all those things, but like, do you think that this experience of coming out of addiction and into becoming the woman that you want to be for the rest of your life and, and continue to grow into being whomever else you want to be, that that process has helped you 
become an entrepreneur or given you some entrepreneurial skills that you didn't have before? Absolutely, 100%. Because when you're getting sober, the possibilities are just endless. And this goes for anybody out there who cannot stop using drugs and they think their life has no direction, they think they have no purpose. Most of us get to this rock bottom point where we have nothing to give anyone anymore because we have no money. Um, you know, whatever your situation is, if you're a drug addict, you probably don't have any money because you're spending all your money on the drugs. So that is a rock bottom point, but it's a beautiful thing to be so low at a rock bottom because the only direction you can go is up. Mm -hmm. And the possibilities <laughs> are just so endless. I mean, you can't get much worse than you're already doing. So right. once, you, once you get sober and that fog sort of clears, you realize that you do have a purpose. You might not know what it is yet, but life becomes this beautiful thing of endless opportunities. And the amazing thing about people in recovery and people who are sober is they have this, this light, this positive energy that they just want to share with everybody. And, and they just want other people to experience what they've experienced. So to be around such positive, uplifting people all the time who, who believe in you and have hope when you have no hope for yourself can really turn things around. Mm. And I, I didn't know I wanted to open a rehab. Um, I had actually no idea. So that sort of just happened really fast. I was still in treatment when my mom and I had discussed the idea about giving other family members what we had received when I was in treatment, which was to fix our relationship and, mm. and that, heal, that healing process. We just really wanted other people to get what we got. Yeah. So we started off small with, I wanted to do maybe more of a sober living thing because sober living was so important for my recovery. I didn't go home after I finished treatment. I went and stayed in a sober living for about a year. Mm -hmm. And this, that was really important for my recovery because it taught me structure. It taught me independence. I mean, I was paying my own rent. I got back on my feet. I got a job. I was doing all the things that they were telling me to do in order to stay sober. So going home directly after rehab is really not recommended because you're just going back to the environment you came from. And it's like, it's just beating a dead horse. You know, it's not... Mm -hmm. It's not conducive to your recovery. You want you want the sure. fresh start. You you want to feel independent that that you can do this, that you can stand on your own two feet. So we decided to try and open a sober living. We bought the house. Um, I moved into the house and was trying to get people to come and stay there. And before I knew it, we were just applying for this license to have a detox and in inpatient residential facility. Mm -hmm. So it all really <laughs> happened. It happened very quickly. And I had no business experience. I mean, my education was in film and production. So <laughs> it really, right, that's why I was it, like, wow, you majored in media arts. And now you're the head of a recovery facility. <laughs> right. It, it, right. It was we all we never know where our life's going to go. Yeah. You just never you... know. Go ahead. 
I was just going to say, you just never know where, where life is going to take you, but I tried to keep an open mind, you know? And, and so it was your mom, your, your mom helped you buy this first house. She did. So that's sort of what my mom does is she, she invests in real estate and then she flips the properties. Mm -hmm. So to her, this was just another, another buy to get a house. And she's really mm-hmm. good at finding the, the right deals and the right locations and all of that. So it was, it was really more her idea to start the rehab. And I just sort of went along with it. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing in my life. I was mm-hmm. 90 days sober. Mm-hmm. And, and this sounded like a project that would keep me busy. And hopefully my attention would stay on on recovery because I was helping other people to recover because honest, to be honest with you, I really didn't think I was going to stay sober. You did. I had done it even after you had that moment, even after I had that moment of clarity. I mean, I was like, here we go again, you know, back to rehab. So I didn't think I was going to stay sober. I I had, Mm -hmm. I didn't really have a lot of faith or a lot of hope in myself because I had failed so many times before. Um, I just had nowhere else to turn at that point. Mm-hmm. which is why I sort of just stayed in the treatment center I was at. I had nowhere else to go. And then mm-hmm. slowly, slowly, I, I started to learn more and more things about myself. And as more time passed and I was still sober, I was like, oh, maybe I can do this. It's not yeah. so bad. I mean, do you, do you still worry about it now? I would be lying to you if I said I didn't. Uh-huh. I, think that, I think that is a healthy fear that every addict in recovery has if they're being honest with themselves that, you know, sure. Oh, what if, what if I do relapse one day? I mean, it's scary, but also it, it's comforting to know that you've made it this far and what you've done so far to stay sober is working. So if mm-hmm. you just sort of keep doing what you've been doing, you're probably going to be okay. I mean, at the end of the day, you just need to be able to look at yourself in the mirror and say, I love you and I am not going to ruin my life again. Mm-hmm. So, but it is hard. I mean, it's, it is a disease that lasts forever. And I, I know I will be dealing with this for the rest of my life, but every day it really does get easier. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. Um, you know, it's kind of, I mean, it's like, you know, people, I mean, whether, you know, I think in business as well, which I'm sure you probably find, you know, you get addicted to the ways that you do things, right? You, you have, you become kind of stale in how you do things, you, you know, you realize that you give the same answers all the time, or you go about looking at things, you know, the same way. And it's sort of, you know, I can see how having the techniques, you know, in your back pocket that you've learned can help you be a better entrepreneur, because you can say, oh, am I Am I, you know, in a sense, like, am I addicted to this way of doing my business? You know, how, how can I change things? How can I roll with the punches? How can I look at it from a different angle? Um, who can I bring in, right? Because obviously in, in your rehab, you, you know, when you, were, uh, when you were a patient there, they had counselors and people to talk to you. And I'm sure that, you, you know, you have your staff at your place. Um, right. Who, who does, who leads the... Um, the classes and, you know, all the different things that you are part of the recovery process. And, and what do you do there exactly? What's, what's your role now? So my role 
as of right now is like my title is director of admissions. Um, I prefer not, I prefer for the clients to not really know that, that I'm the founder. I mean, they find out eventually, of course, because it's a small mm-hmm. program and everybody talks, but initially I just, I just want them to see me as another person and somebody who can identify with the struggles that they're currently facing. Mm-hmm. My favorite part about my role is that I am the first person that the client makes contact with. So I actually answer our phones. I do what's called a pre-screening assessment with the client before they come into the facility. So we want to make sure that, that they're a good fit, that we have the tools needed to, to help mm-hmm. them in their journey to recovery. Mm-hmm. We don't want to take people in that we can't help if they have severe mental illness or a really bad eating disorder or something that requires a lot more psychological help. Um, mm-hmm. our, pri- our, our primary is substance abuse. So mm-hmm. we do this screening process and I love talking to the clients when they're in it. They're just in their addiction. They're raw. They're vulnerable. They're crying. They're, they're hopeless. They feel so hopeless and to just sort of be able to say to them, like, Hey, you're going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Like, do you say, like, do you, you tell them that you've been there? Um, not always on the initial phone call, but you know what? It's sort of like this unspoken language between two drug addicts. You just sort of know that they understand mm. what you've been through based on, just a simple conversation. I mean, I can talk to a nurse or somebody who, who's in the medical field and she has seen addiction day in, day out, and I will know if she has actually battled with that addiction herself or not. You mm. just sort of, it's this unspoken language between pe- two people you just know. So I don't necessarily need to say, oh, yeah, you know, I used to shoot heroin. I was a gutter <laughs> junkie for five years living on the streets and motels. I don't really need to say all that for them to know that I've been there. Mm-hmm. And they can tell, and they, and they feel more comfortable to open up to you when you're not talking about yourself as much. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. once again, they're in their addiction. Understand. Right, and, and it's a selfish place <clears throat> to be in. It's like, me, 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 me. They don't really right. want to hear about you. They want to talk sure. about themselves and, and how yeah. bad their how lives gonna, are. How you're going to fix them. Right. Exactly. And want, so, yeah. But I enjoy um, that. I enjoy that initial phone call. It's fun for me. How And so um, I think I was told that you're in the process of obtaining your certification as a drug and alcohol counselor. Is that? Yes. Um, how's that going and how does... How, how does that work? Does that take years or? It's a bit of a long process. It's not exactly a degree. It's a, it's a certificate to basically just certify that you're a counselor. Uh, I took a class for about a year and a half, and now I'm going through the process of acquiring all the hours. So mm. there's a bunch of different things you need to pile those hours up. And then once you're done with your hours, you take a board exam through the state and you get your certificate. So cool. just trying to, you know, get that ball rolling. Um, but the whole process has really taught me a lot about how to help people and, and what you should say and what you shouldn't say. And, and I think that makes a difference, you know, for our clients when, when the staff has had that education. Sure. And are, are most of your, uh, are most of the counselors 
um, ex-addicts or are they, I mean, I don't really know how that works. Um, it's pretty, it's a pretty common career choice for people to, to take once they've, you know, recovered from addiction. A lot of people do go into getting their counseling certificate to become a substance abuse counselor. Um, but I have met people in this industry who have a loved one that suffered from addiction or they just know it on some level and they chose to work in this field because of that. And I always tell my staff, you know, it's not important for you to have gone through an addiction yourself in order to work in this field. Mm -hmm. What you need is to have compassion for the people that are going through it. And that's it. You don't have to be a recovered drug addict to help somebody who is. Right. I, I can see that. Um, I think that you just have to be a talented counselor, you know, therapist or psychiatrist. <laughs> one one of the three, right, you know, to be able to, I mean, just like, you know, are you helping someone who's, trying, who's you know, going to probably get divorced or is having relationship problems? You know, you don't have to have been through one yourself. Um, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, how, how do you guys get clients? I mean, does the phone just ring off the hook on its own? Do you advertise? You know, how, how's that process progress? Well, I wish the phone would ring off the hook. You know, <laughs> um, we do a lot of marketing. Um, I personally go to treatment centers and talk to the owners and the admissions people there. You can do what's called an organic referral where if a client is, is relapsing consistently in another program, then his counselors will refer him to go to another facility because it's like, okay, we're not going to keep you here when you just keep relapsing because something right. in this program is not working for you. So you should probably try somewhere else. So that sort of sure. thing. Um, but we don't really pay for commercials on TV or like billboards or, or magazines or anything like that. Um, that can be quite costly. So you'll see like some of the bigger, fancier rehabs like Passages and Malibu and stuff, they have their commercials. Um, mm -hmm. We just sort of try to get people in when we can. If somebody finds us on Google or listens to a podcast, um, mm -hmm. what, whatever we can do to help people is the important thing. You know, we're here, we're available. Uh, we're not trying to be this huge rehab that, you know, has a hundred beds. We're really sure. small. We keep it small and we're not always full, you know, and, and that is the struggle of the business. There's, it's hard when you want to help people and, and at the same time you need to keep your business afloat and you have staff and, and therapists and counselors to pay for their time uh, to help people. So it is a difficult, you know, it's a difficult field to work in. Definitely, as a business owner, I have struggles, you know. Uh, but the important thing is that if if somebody does find us, they know we have a bed and we can help them and we can feed mm -hmm. you and you'll have a roof over your head and you're going to get groups and learn how to stay sober, which is the whole point. The whole point, exactly. Um, and because also I would imagine it's kind of tricky in the uh, talking to about it because it's not like you know, you can't just like say, hey, can I come talk at an AA meeting? Right, right. Um, <laughs> and that would be awesome if you could go solicit at places like that. Um, yeah, you know, 
um, because they're they're your people. Um, yeah, exactly. That's a that's a big no no in the AA. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it, I can see how it can be kind of tricky. I mean, I guess you know, and probably not too many people are looking on social media for uh, recovery centers because they probably don't have a phone or a computer. Um, if they're anything like you were uh, when you were in exactly. the throes of it. So, exactly. um, yeah, so it's kind of a lot of, you probably depend a lot on word of mouth as well, you know? Yeah, I think word of mouth is huge and, and just communicating with other treatment centers and hospitals and stuff like that and going mm-hmm. for those organic leads is our best bet. But mm-hmm. I'm, I always keep an open mind on how we can continue to grow and how we can reach more people. Yeah, Yeah, I would imagine. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for sharing your story. And I really appreciate your honesty and your openness. And, um, you know, I just hope that people listening today, if you guys can really get how Lisa went, you know, um, you know, from the gutter out out into a real business and has 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 this. her serenity treatment center so that she can help people like her, you know, get their, you know, stuff together and get out there and get off their addiction and move on with their life and see that they have so much to live for and the difference that they can make in the world. And she's gone from, you know, taking, stealing, living on the street, you know, doing drugs to helping people and making a difference in the world. And, I really was impressed when I heard about this and um, really appreciate you sharing your story. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. Yeah, good luck. Can't wait to, uh, to catch up with you another time and see how things are going. Absolutely, anytime. You have my number. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to A Street Smart MBA with Sarah Shaw. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes to get the latest episodes anytime, anywhere. And we'll see you on the next one.